Okay, so I'm going to tell you a parable that if you've been following my work in the last six months, you'll have heard me say. Uh, it's, it's a relatively new one. I came across it uh, through something I think I read of René Girard, uh, but I've used it like four or five times in various talks. But what I want to do is try to dissect it in a way that I haven't done before. So even if you've heard the parable, hopefully you won't hear what, what, I, what I'm going to do with it tonight. And uh, it's that parable of uh, a man who hears that there is a treasure hidden in a rocky field uh, under one of the rocks. And so this guy goes into the rocky field and starts picking up the rocks to try to find the treasure. And the story goes that after he's picked up a hundred rocks and has found no treasure, eventually he seeks out a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it. Now, one of the reasons why I really like this story is because, and, and what I want to do tonight, you know, in an hour, let's see if we can do it in an hour, is actually talk about the cure, right? Is to talk about, I always come back to the subject as one of my passions is what does it mean to, uh, to find depth and meaning uh, in life to commit yourself to a vocation that is transformative, um, that is not about happiness or positivity. I kind of want to reject a lot of that, but, but that brings depth and meaning to your existence and um, connects you with the world. But can, I, I want to call it productive maladaption, uh, mal right? So you're productively maladapted to the world, uh, which means that you don't, you're not, uh, you're not uh, adapted so well to the world that you don't want to change it, right? So if you look at Instagram or something, right, and all these positivity videos, like if people are really positive and happy about their life, well, then they're not going to change anything, right? Why would you change anything if you're happy, right? Um, so you're, which is great. I mean, and there's some people who are happy uh, to some extent, but if that's the goal, then you might find yourself uh, so well adapted to your world that you're not doing something productive to transform it. And I also, in the course of this conversation, will probably want to pick holes in that very notion of happiness anyway. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yes, so in order to begin to kind of pick out what I mean by the cure, I want to look at how in this parable, you've got two things fighting against each other. And, uh, in psychoanalysis, you can call them the difference between desire and drive. So desire is primarily focused on, um, wanting something right you desire something that you're lacking and you seek to get that um oh by the way i'm just going to mute see if i'm trying to mute everybody there's some uh, mute all here we go there we go that should work um perfect um oh yeah so uh, in psychoanalysis you have this idea of drive and desire desire is what we all know Right? Desire is when we would like something. We'd like to go on a holiday. We'd like to have a drink. By the way, I'm going to get a beer in a second. I forgot about that. I've got a little shot of vodka, but it's finished. So I'm going to get a beer in a second. But um, it, it's not pints and parables if I'm not drinking. Um, 
so I want a beer, right? <clears throat> in daily life, we desire things. <clears throat> so that's what we understand. <clears throat> that's our consciousness. Uh, but drive is related to loss. It's related to sacrifice. It's related to what we don't have. <clears throat> and that's unconscious because we, we don't directly want sacrifice. We don't directly want loss. In fact, in our conscious lives, that's the last thing we want. Um, this is why actually the drive, you could say, is never, never made conscious because they're two different registers in our lives. And the register of loss is kind of, um, it's completely anathema to, to our everyday lives where we want things, where we revolve around certain desires and fulfilling those desires, bringing homeostasis into our lives, bringing a certain peace into our existence. So why do we have this notion of drive? So in the parable, right, the desire is for the treasure. The guy's lifting these rocks to find the treasure. So that's desired. We don't really need to explain that in any serious way. Although we do, because why do we desire things? Uh, desire isn't inherent in objects, right? Because we all desire different things, right? If, if desire was inherent in an object, then we'd all desire the same object. So there is a question of why we desire things. We don't think there is, but there, there is a question and, and drive might help us answer that question. So, but anyway, I, I, we don't have to answer it in terms of our everyday lives. We can understand this guy wants to find the treasure. He's lifting all of the rocks. Drive is where he tries to find a rock that he can't lift. Drive is this revolving around not getting what you want, right? Not getting the treasure. Um, and Freud, this was Freud's breakthrough, right? In many ways, psychoanalysis is a discipline that is birthed from the realization that we often don't want what we think we want, right? That's the, so there's kind of like a, um, it's, there's a BC and an AD of Freud, and it's around the book called uh, um, Beyond the the pleasure principle, right? Where Freud confronts this weird thing in the clinic where people keep going back to unpleasant experiences, where they keep uh, reliving in their lives um, things that are damaging and destructive to them. And he starts to try to theorize why this is, and he offers a number of theories, and they kind of increase in complexity and insight as they, they go along. And there's a difference between counseling and analysis. So in counseling, pretty much it's the level of desire, right? It's the level of, just like you, if you break your arm, if you put it in a cast and you look after it, it will eventually heal, right? And so counseling is a, is a similar thing. To counsel means somebody wants to live a good life. They want to fix themselves. They do want to be in suffering. So if you give them the right counsel, they can begin to make changes in their lives uh, and, and you know, become better, right? And from an evolutionary psychology perspective, that makes sense. Because in evolutionary psychology, the idea is that, that the evolution is reinscribed into the psychic life. And in evolution, things 
left to their own devices, adapt and survive. So of course then putting that into the, the subjective realm means that human beings left to their own devices and with a little bit of help, a little bit of positive reinforcement, a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever, will be able to you know, improve their lives. Um, but if you take the death drive seriously, which is this drive that I'm talking about, then you hit a really difficult thing, which is what if, what if there's a part of us that doesn't want what is good for us? Uh, what, what if there is a part of us that is self-destructive? What if people vote against their own self-interests? What about if people act in ways that are knowingly destructive to them? going out with people who they know are bad for them or doing work that they know is going to give them a heart attack and, and lessen their lives, right? So we enter into this weird space of what's called the death drive. Um, now, I'll, I'm going to tell you another story. Uh, and again, this is one that I told that in the Paro Theology 101 course, so you might have heard me tell it. But it's, a, it's from Greek mythology, and it's about... Orpheus and Eurydice, who are deeply in love, they're married, but the love affair is cut short, right? It's prophesied that it's going to be cut short, and it is cut short. Uh, Eurydice dies from a snake bite uh, and is brought down to the underworld. Well, Orpheus is distraught, and he does everything in his power to get her back. And he is brave enough and strong enough to go into the underworld to confront Cerberus, the three-headed hound, and eventually confront Hades himself. And Hades is so impressed that Hades says, okay, you can take Eurydice out of the underworld, but you've got to, you know, you've got to accomplish one more task. And Orpheus is ready for anything. Like he's already gone into the underworld. Like what else, what else is there, right? Um, but then he's shocked because the task is super easy. The task is that he just simply has to walk out of the underworld and Eurydice will follow him. I think he's going to play his lyre. He's a, he's a musician, right? So he's going to play the music and she's going to follow him, right? And the only thing he has to do is not look back. And if he doesn't look back, Eurydice will be released from the underworld, and they will be together forever. Well, of course, what does uh, Orpheus do at the last minute? Well, he loses his nerve, and he looks back to see if Eurydice is really following him. And at that moment, he sees Eurydice being pulled back into the underworld so they can never be together. Again, this is a beautiful representation of the difference between desire and drive and how they confront each other. His desire is to be with Eurydice. His desire is to have the love affair, the relationship, the marriage, grow all together. That's the desire. But the drive is to lose her, is to not have her. Now, consciously, he's not even aware of it. And that's, that's why we read the parable. And when we read that story, um, the common sense reading is just that Orpheus is an idiot, right? The, the common sense reading is to go like, oh, he's just impatient and, you know, whatever, um, a stupid guy or whatever. Um, but actually what we do is we glimpse the unconscious. And this is why I, I said earlier 
about why do we desire what we desire, right? Potentially, desire is related to loss. We desire what is, we need to sacrifice for, and we desire what we cannot have, and we desire what we have to risk our lives for, right? So now there's this really weird connection between desire and loss that is caught. And, and Orpheus, I know someone like this. I know I, know I have a friend and she, um, she, in order to be married, and happily married, right? She has to have somebody else who she cannot have from her past. And so weirdly, although consciously in her desire, her desires for her family and for her kids, and, and, and that is a healthy thing, right? There is this unconscious drive to, to for something that she can't have with somebody else. And in a way, she keeps that other person at arm's length uh, in order to keep her desire alive. So this is weirdly a way for her to keep her desire going. Um, or to take a, a very common example, people often think that uh, people are jealous because they love. But, but, but that relationship is not one way. It's more two-way. In fact, it's more primarily the other way, the reverse, which is sometimes people can only love because they're jealous. In other words, they need the threat of something being taken away from them in order to keep their desire functioning and alive. But this causes a big problem in our lives because now we're caught between desire and drive <laughs> and um, it can be incredibly painful for us. Uh, we can desire, we were I was talking to Bill there earlier before we started officially, but you know, talking about even financial success, right? Somebody can desire wealth, but their drive is for, is, it means that they continually never have enough. Right? The drive is, it's never enough. There's always a lack. There's always something. And at its most negative, it means you can never enjoy what you have because there's always this drive for more. And the drive keeps desire alive while frustrating it. So the analyst, uh, Bruce Fink, talks about how uh, we cannot enjoy our enjoyment. And that's very key. The idea we cannot enjoy our enjoyment. What that means is that we are getting enjoyment out of our lack, right? Orpheus is getting enjoyment out of seeing Eurydice's leave. Because what is he getting? Well, he's getting the fantasy of them being together and how incredible the relationship could be if only they could be together. A kind of fantasy that could never fully be lived out in reality, right? Because real love is difficult, it's painful, it, it, it's, it's not this kind of like a bachelor type thing, the show The Bachelor, you know, um, where everything's very beautiful and perfect and all of that. Um, you know, I, as far as I know, The Bachelor has a very low success rate in terms of their marriages. I think it's under 15%, right? Um, which isn't surprising. So the, the difficulty is we are getting enjoyment out of drive but we often aren't enjoying our enjoyment. We are, in the words of Lacan, we, um, 
we're, we're taking too long a route towards our enjoy, enjoyment. We're kind of like, we're too far away from it. We're too, the, the journey that we're on is just, is, is too difficult. And we're, we're finding it very painful. So a lot of psychoanalysis is about how to shorten the circuit, how to kind of enjoy the loss in a, in a more productive way. And I want to say one more thing, and then I'm going to kind of open it up for some discussion. Um, but this is my concern with some forms of uh, therapies and new age stuff and uh, kind of things around psychedelics and stuff. And I'm not against them as kind of having a ther potential therapeutic value or being very enjoyable to do. But one concern I have um, is that uh, although um, I'm kind of interested in researching this a little bit more, but is that we often want to escape the drive. We want to unplug from reality. We want to have what can be called an autistic jouissance, which is a kind of pleasure in which we kind of are taken out of the world. We're unplugged from the world. Uh, and that weirdly is interconnected with the experience of oneness because you're both unplugged from the world and the world with all of this lack, but then you feel yourself connected with everyone insofar as they are like you, right? So that's why you're still unplugged, right? You can have this very beautiful experience of oneness with everybody, but they have to, um, they have to fit within your world and then you feel kind of at one with everything. Uh, in parotheology, the idea is not to unplug from your experience of lack and it's not to kind of what's connected with that which is to feel a sense of a, a oneness with the world so an adaptation with the world so you're weirdly both unplugged from the world and very well adapted to the world right you can experience what is and enjoy what is and feel yourself at peace with what is in parotheology the idea is how do we shorten the, uh, and this is a word, you know, I'm using Lacan here, but how do we shorten the circuit? How do we enjoy our lack of enjoyment? How do we experience a type of depth and, uh, and value in life in our yearning for something we do not have? And the name for this is love, right? Love is a yearning that is pleasurable. Whenever you love a cause or a person, you yearn and you are full of desire and longing, but it is, a, it is a yearning that is exquisite in its suffering and its joy. And it's what connects you with the world. It like anchors you into some part of the world. And if you have a cause that you love, it gives you meaning, even in the midst of difficulties. And so in relation to the parable of the rocky field, and the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, I think what we can take out of these is a, an understanding of desire and drive, how they're interconnected, how we can never resolve the conflict between the two, but maybe there is a way for us to turn that conflict into something meaningful and positive and good. And I think that's connected with the, the mission and the vocation of parotheology. 
okay, I've been chatting for about 25 minutes, so um, I'd love to spend 20 minutes or 25 minutes in conversation with you guys. Uh, so please, does somebody want to kick off the conversation? And I'm going to get a beer while you're sort of deciding who's going to talk first, but I can hear you, so start talking. The fridge is just literally here. Okay, so um, Peter, being familiar with your illustration of gambling, that the key to the enjoyment of gambling is loss. Yeah. Is it, I mean, it draws me into the key to a quality religious experience is hell. Because the pursuit of heaven, of course, is what it's all about, but hell is the key. Yes, they're, they're like, they're interconnected. I mean, I, I was actually writing a book about this and never got finished it. But um, the first chapter is called Heaven is Hell. Um, and it's, it's partly looking at the interconnection between the two of those. Um, but sorry, keep going. Talk, talk, um, what were you saying? So in terms of the gambling then, what's your... Well, it's the whole thing, you know, professionally having um, uh, experience in addictions and addiction abatement mm -hmm. is the draw is always to the negative. And those in religion, the draw is always to the negative. Yeah. And so understanding that passion to go back to what you can't have, the girl you can't have. Yeah. And when that is released, then, well, I've listened to you so much. It's, you know, th that truly being healthy enough then to, to let yourself then enjoy the positive, the sobriety, the uh, relationship gambling. with God without uh, hell. Yes. Gamble, as gamble and win and enjoy the win and then re respond appropriately to the loss, which is, you know, stepping away from. But and that's where I call you a bass backwards communicator is you, you always go to that opposite. Yeah. And every time you do it, I think, oh, you got to be kidding me. And then I think, no, that actually makes sense. Yeah, and you know, that, that example of gambling, that's, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because it's a, it's a good one because I think, like we initially think that the gambler is addicted to winning, right? That's of course the, the first thought you have, the gambler wants to win, but actually the, the desire is for winning, but the addiction is to losing because the loss generates the increasing desire for the win. So as soon as you hear that, again, that's just a good way of describing the difference between desire and drive, is that, that when you come to addictive behavior, and there's obviously um, uh, you know, biological dimensions, et cetera, et cetera, but when, we, when you kind of start to talk about the subjective dimension of addiction, you, just, you will find that what people are addicted to, uh, what people enjoy is the good bit, and what people are addicted to, as you say, is the, is the bad. Um, I, I once was in, I did psychoanalysis for a year and um, I was in a relationship that I called a heroin relationship. And I, uh, this is a long time ago. And I said, like, I was addicted to the highs in the, the, the analysis. I was addicted to the highs. And my analysis was Lacanian, never really said very much at all, but um, said, um, well, maybe you're addicted to the lose. And I remember whenever that was said, it kind of like clicked. It was like, oh yeah, I'm not addicted to the highs of this relationship. I'm addicted to, I'm addicted to the, the trauma of it. And because it keeps regenerating desire, it, it's, it's the way that I get desire to function. Yeah. You're nailing it. No, thank you. 
Yeah. <laughs> now you now you know what I'm about. You guys can just walk away. But I I you know you've been we've been on this journey together for a while now. So I hope you stick at it a little bit longer. <laughs> I know you're helping other people through this now. In fact, for everybody else that uh, Jean and Dee and myself are talking about doing um, developing some a course and uh, they'd be developing some facilitation groups to help people walk through these ideas in a very practical way. So that's stuff that's going to hopefully happen soon. Yeah, to add on to it, I'm an applicationalist. Uh, Peter, you're brilliant. I love it. And I find others like as in if you're, if you're in the AA model and you've come through a period of addiction, usually it starts 10, 13, 14, through your high school years, your um, education is muted oftentimes, but you get to that point where you go, this is killing me, and they then step into the process of sobriety with a modest education, oftentimes very brilliant and smart, but the encouragement to come, and how do you bring it down to that level? You go, oh, I see what you're talking about. And even religiously, is that those who say, I, I know they meant well, but it didn't work. And how could it work? And so you have the brilliance and I come in really at the bottom and say, okay, how do we go incrementally from the bottom up? And when they then have ears to hear, they go, oh, I see what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's my passion for the broken as we both Didi and I sit with the broken with no answers for them because it's a matter of opening up their heart to hear yeah. um, that willingness to say, if that's true, can I make, how would I do it for me? How would I take a first step, which is, you know, I'm powerless. Yeah. And starting the process. So I appreciate your respect for what we're reaching out for. And I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I, one of my most, most profound experiences I have had in this work was when some people invited me to, um, they did prison work and they invited me to go and visit the, some long-term prisoners who were in from anywhere between 18 years in life. And um, so and I was in Nashville. So I went and there was a group of us and we we're in a circle. And I was told when I was going in, I'm like, listen, one thing you don't do, by the way, is and I like, don't ask why people are in, right? You know, that's not something you do, right? You might've seen it in the movie or whatever, but you know, is people are you know, going to be private about that stuff. But uh, in the circle, I remember talking about these ideas and talking about how, um, also talking about how like, we have to confront the darkness in ourselves. We can't run from it. And I, kinda, and I was kind of going like, this is all very, can be very abstract. And I was wondering how it would go down. And the people in the room just were like completely were there and were going like, no, we totally understand this. So they're like, we live this. And they went round. And what was really powerful was they started to say why they were in prison. And they took, some of them started talking very, very personally. And they said, like, when you go to prison, you either confront the monstrous dimension of yourself or you become that monster. And, um, I was like, it was very powerful for me because I was like going like, this can all sound very abstract, but actually the people who understood it best were these people who'd been in prison for 20 years. Like, okay, that's, this is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to pipe in here because I think that there's something quite interesting about the concept that um, we're all in a type of <laughs> prison at the moment and especially as an Australian 
my country was created as a prison for England. <laughs> so, um, you know, at the moment, you know, the sort of self-confinement and the idea that um, I guess, um, you know, to sort of come out of it at the moment, there's a huge amount of binging on narrative. So everyone's on watching Netflix and there's a huge amount of stimulation happening and addiction to story and narrative in a sort of Joan Didion kind of way. And I've been thinking a lot as well as you were talking about how narratives around love become addictive as well. Like they follow a certain pattern and there's always the sort of grand gesture or the, you know, especially <laughs> with um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Mm. And I and I'm and I'm sort of circling around these ideas that being addictive to, to narrative, being addicted to narratives is probably a part of the human condition. Um, and it's sort of why parables are important, why grand texts are important, why poetry is important. And at the moment, the the opposite of addiction to narrative is perhaps silence or boredom or disconnection. So it's not necessarily a, you need a drug to unplug. You need to unplug from every single narrative. Just, <laughs> just wow. remove yourself, blank out from any narrative that you could be thinking about. The government, about your country, about love, about God, <laughs> about anything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, and, and in terms of that, um, well, in terms of the narrative thing and then the silences, I actually think that, yeah, the best, the best parables are, they, they rupture narrative, they kind of like break down our ways of seeing the world. They, they, um, they confront us with the unconscious. They confront us with a way what, what can't be rendered conscious. So um, one of the things I love about, yeah, our, even that's why I'm not a big fan of narrative theology actually as well because narrative theology kind of renders text into a type of narrative a story a story of you know they say God's working in the world whereas um in in many ways where the transformation happens is in the is in the rupture of narrative and um, I don't know if that's what you mean by silence at all or is that is that a is that people's kind of like being oversaturated by narrative and story and mythology yeah i guess there's a, a thing at the moment especially you know in the arts in australia which is our government isn't helping any of the artists that are suffering right now um and who are out of work and lost their jobs like all of the support doesn't support them so they're sort of responding by saying you know what what if you had no books what if you had no music what if there were no stories what if you had no netflix what if you had you know no films nothing like if if there was no art in the world and all the stories were removed and all the narratives were removed what would you be left with which is a really powerful way of saying how do you sit with whatever's already inherently within you what do we become reduced to if it's just biology or <laughs> if if we sort of you know completely you know go to the tabula rasa and and just wind it right right back what are we left with and it's coronavirus like i think in a way has asked us to to reevaluate a lot of things 
um, that we take for granted as far as what are our distractions. Yeah. Yeah, because that's right. You're you're a drama teacher, isn't that right? You lecture in drama and theatre, isn't that right? No, I'm an I'm an arts and cultural strategist actually, but oh. I, I'm have a background as a playwright. But yeah, <laughs> okay, I was half right. I kind of got it completely wrong, but was in the right ballpark. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's difficult because like it, there is a way in which I think artists are are so out of like kind of makes sense to me that they're going to be screwed, sadly, because um because great artists don't reflect ideology they um you know they their work often confronts us with the the fractures in ideology they confront us with the gaze and um and so yeah they're not going to be the first that the society is going <laughs> to support sometimes unless you've got a very healthy government i guess but um yeah like it, but i mean to be then honest, you can think you know should the government be running any like should should the government support punk music in yeah. a way, you know, and, and then you come back to this idea that you've said before, which is about productively being maladapted to the world, which yeah. is basically what an artist is. They're just generating stuff because they're outside. But it's weird because they're both outside and integral and integrated and a part of everything to yeah. such a degree that they're invisible. They're so ubiquitous that they're nothing. Like... Even with, you know, a text like the Bible that was still written, that is still art. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think about that sort of constant, the continuum that you're talking about and the fact that you can't actually escape um, I mean, I think, I think the, being at once. The cognitive dissonance, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the, the curse of, a, of an artist, I think, is generally productive maladaptation. Um, and, and sadly, a lot of artists are maladapted unproductively and maybe they end up killing themselves or whatever. And then some artists aren't maladapted and then they start creating Hollywood movies. <laughs> uh, but, but artists are, I think, generally cursed with productive maladaptation. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so they're sadly by definition going to find it hard. I, I'm, my, I, I have a side interest in helping people be freelance uh, artists and thinkers. Uh, in other words, how do you how do you protect yourself financially while being a kind of a, a gadfly on society? So <laughs> um, I'm interested in that, you know, because personally I've had to learn how to do that. So I want to help others to do it as well. So with all these narratives, there's there seems to be kind of a spectrum of the stories being told. Um, I'm struggling with um, the conspiracy narratives that especially are coming out with Corona mm -hmm. and like, it's just like, it's making me a bit crazy in my head. And as I've got family members back in the U S um, you know, who are buying into this and reposting, you know, there's a, I think pandemic is a, a supposed documentary that's been done. Um, you know, that is looking at that there's something else that's behind all of this. And, you know, where, where does this fit into the maladaption? Where does it fit into these stories that you know, at, at times, you know, is, is there a wrong story to, to tap into? Is there a right story? Yeah, that's good, Ken. I said, I can't, for some reason, your face didn't come up, but uh, I knew that voice anyway. Um, uh, by the way, that's a good title. Plan, uh, what's it? Plandemic. That's clever. That's good. <laughs> that's very creative. Um, you know, in a nutshell, th this is, um, I, th I think it's a good rule of thumb 
right? When I talk, when I think about the three structures of psychosis, perversion, and neurosis, um, it, if I was to put them into buckets, I would say psychosis is out of the world, perversion is in the world, and neurosis is in the world, but not of it. Right? Now, what I mean by that is that a lot of conspiracy theories are psychotic structures, and not, not everybody who's a conspiracy theorist is psychotic at all, but, but, but it definitely has a psychotic type of structure, which basically means you can, you're, you're, not, you're not productively maladapted to the world, you're actually kind of outside social reality. Um, and by outside social reality, I mean, you know, maybe you think that the FBI are after you. Maybe you think there's a grand Jewish conspiracy. Maybe you think um, there is, a, you know, what, whatever it is, there's loads of them. They're on the right and the left. It's just, it's a sense in which you, there's a, a kind of um, panopticon of, of surveillance. You're being looked at, you're being talked to, you're being controlled, but you can't quite isolate where it's coming from. So... I sometimes think that of like the conspiracy theories, and by the way, again, not all conspiracy theories are bad. And I think if someone has a psychotic structure, they can turn that to good, become a really good investigative journalist and cover some really important problems. Um, and there's probably some good places to critique um, what's going on at the moment. But all of that aside, if someone's very caught up in in conspiracy theories, I think of them as not maladapted to the world, not in the world, but not of it, but actually cursed with being completely outside the world, caught in a, in a narrative that, that isn't useful for them or for anybody else because it's so divorced. Um, so do, do you want to come back to me? But I, that's what I hear in, in that kind of psychotic structure. It's like, it's, it's not the productive maladaptation of an artist that's critical, it's more a, a completely outside of social reality. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that, yeah it makes a, makes a lot of sense and that puts it in a nice structure um, and, and also shows, I guess, a bit of respect, you know, for someone that might be telling that story. I'm still uncomfortable with that story, but yeah, you know, probably needs to be represented I've, as I've been thinking this through and um, I've got a family member that keeps that, that same pandemic video. They keep posting it and it keeps getting taken down or like they'll find it somewhere and it keeps getting taken down. So that even contributes to the conspiracy, you know, that they're, they're big brothers watching yeah. and finding where this story that actually tells the truth is coming out. I know. Um, <laughs> and like, I, like I'm all about the subversive and the rupturing and all of that, but I, I think that some of this pulls us into a, a, a non-productive area that we're not actually having a good, a good influence. Oh, hundred percent. And I, like, I've got a few friends who are, who are kind of potentially have psychotic structures and they're getting very drawn into it and they're trying to pretend they're not, but I can see from even their tweets that they're, that they're, they're toying with, uh, the, it doesn't exist. It's just 5g and all of that kind of stuff. You know? Um, but um, so yeah, the, the question, although not, but for you as in the person, you know, this person is, is to what extent might they actually be suffering from a type of personal psychosis uh, or to what extent are they neurotic and they have a legitimate kind of critique, like they're, they, they're, they, they're annoyed at a of certain things and they're kind of expressing it. It sounds the, like- The psychotic structure is Christianity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I think um, 
I think some of the, the Christianity that you have experience in ten, has, has some of that element within it. Yeah. <laughs> to say that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> and can I jump in on that for a second, please? Guys? Please, please. So I come from a super atheistic background, so it's interesting for me to see how everyone relates to um, conspiracy theories. I'm coming right now from just having met a friend for a beer who's very, very invested in conspiracy theories. Mm. I always find it super, super interesting. And I actually have come to kind of love this aspect of this person's personality. Um, what One way that I've come to think of this is that um, the structure of a conspiracy theory allows the person to not be forgotten. It offers some kind of existential security because I think that's a lot more comforting to imagine that somebody is either consciously plotting against you or has your interest in mind in some regard um, as opposed to being completely forgotten, which is the much more likely reality in almost every situation. That's very nicely said. You, you bring up something very important, um, which I always try to remember when it comes to individuals and you're talking, is that, is that like gen, the psychotic structure is protecting someone from something even worse. That's why you can't actually directly assault it and you shouldn't directly assault it because it's, it's, a, it's a defense against something even, even worse. And for, for most people who have a psychotic structure, they are very close to the void. They're very close to the real, which means they feel themselves almost on the verge of, of unraveling. On a, almost, if it's bad, almost on a daily basis, they feel themselves on the verge of, of their entire symbolic structure, which is very weak, of, of, of going away completely. And so sometimes the, basically the, the conspiracy theory is what holds them together, it's what knots them together. And, and, and so, you know, shouldn't be directly assaulted. Um, and then I have a friend who was, was gotten into conspiracy theories, but is not psychotic, he's neurotic. Um, he just got into it because he was very stressed, his life was falling apart. So he was having a type of psychotic break, but not as a psychotic, he was a neurotic, but he was, he was close to the real, he was close to his, the fabric coming apart. It was during the recession, he lost all his money, got into big debt, uh, all his significance as a business person, et cetera, all went. And he got into 9-11 truther. He was a 9-11 truther. But the difference was he had a certain distance to it. So he could talk about it. He could, he could engage in doubt and unknowing. He could, he could doubt his own story. And that's how you can generally tell whether someone's neurotic who's in the conspiracy theories and someone who's psychotic and in the psych into conspiracy theories, the latter can't fight. They can't, um, in, they can't uh, engage in a critical disagreement. So my friend was a truther for a while, right? This guy, Jimmy, and he laughs about it now, but he was really into it, just like I was a creationist for a while, right? Um, but but it was, there was a certain level of rationality that underpinned it, that allowed for discussion. When that's not there, you know you're probably dealing with a with someone who's very close to the real, very close to their reality unraveling, and um, you've got to be sympathetic to that. That's a little bit of what I heard and what you were saying. Is that does that resonate with you? Yeah, that sounds yeah spot on. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Anybody else want to jump in? Or Raphael? Okay. I got a thought too. 
Am I coming through? I can hear somebody. Yeah, he's that. That's, that's me, Phil, uh, from Michigan. Um, so when I first got into your work like four or five years ago, you, at that point you were talking a lot about um, the figure of the rebels with, from Camus. Uh -huh. And I was just kind of curious how, because you don't talk about that that much anymore. I'm just kind of curious how that ties into this, because it seems like it, that, that progressive maladaption kind of really ties in well with his idea of the rebel. It does, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the funny thing is, so I, I don't, I, I, whenever you start asking that question, I thought you were going to maybe bring up how Todd McGowan doesn't like the figure of the rebel. Do you know that? Have you read, you've read some Todd McGowan, haven't you? Or have you? Uh, I went through the Emancipation after Hegel thing. Yes, because there's a I, chapter I, where he, familiar. Yeah, he, critiques, yeah, he critiques the rebel in that book. <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny because I talked to, to, to Todd about it um, because he so just for everybody else the figure of the rebel for Camus is someone who you could say exists between um the conservative and the liberal say for example the conservative wants to go back to a golden age in the past they want to return to something and say the liberal is the one who wants to progress to a utopia to a future right um so both are kind of caught up to some extent in a type of utopia, one that lies in the past and the golden age and one that lies in the future. And the rebel is the one who enjoys the discontent of living in the middle. They enjoy the dissatisfaction and the, the work without ever trying to get to the end goal. Now, the reason why Todd is critical of that, Todd McGowan, is because he hears in the rebel someone who defines themselves against the system. And I get him, I totally agree that if someone defines themselves always against, then there's a certain sense in which they're not freed from what they rebel against. In a certain sense, they're still caught up in the logic of what they're against. And then at an even more interesting level, they unconsciously might, will still want what they resist. Um, you know, the example of love trumps hate, the signs, right? Whereas some people maybe are, they think they're against, the Democrats or the Republicans, but they actually enjoy being against them and actually get their identity from that. Now, I get that from Todd, and Todd might be right that that's in Camus, but my reading of the rebel is not someone who defines themselves against, um, but who rather um, is, is, has found a way of enjoying their discontent. And, and, and working within the world. So yes, I still think the rebel is a good figure for understanding exactly what we're talking about tonight. I just also want to mention that Todd McGowan, who's a thinker I deeply respect, he would disagree <laughs> and would say that the rebel is not the, the figure because the rebel is more like the adolescent kind of like I'm against everything. Um, who secretly wants what they're against, or not even the adolescent. I would say, I know some of these people, like the, 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 the wealthy uh, Hollywood person who has all of the right, they're rich enough to have the culturally right views, right? The, they've got cultural capital so they can, they can believe all the things that make them look good on social media because they can afford to. And, but they're not really against them. They're kind of like, they're against them only insofar as it makes them feel more comfortable with what they have. Right, so, yeah. 
What do you think, by the way? Do you like the figure of the rebel as a... I, yeah, I do because, um, you know, similarly, and it's probably because I'm reading it through your lens. Um, but, uh, you know, I see that figure as, as somebody who gives themselves over to the task, you know, of the, of, you know, the, the, the project they're working on or giving themselves over to the world. And um, you know, I just, I find that very inspiring and very useful. And, you know, a way to kind of, you know, I guess a, a model for being in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can understand why Todd, right? Because Todd, Todd's trying to, like, Todd's trying to um, chart how you become free, especially in emancipation after Hegel, so all the way to emancipation. So it's, it's how do you become free? So that's what the book's about. And as he charts how to become free, one of the stages is where you define yourself against, which in human development is when as an adolescent, you resist your parents and you define yourself against what you came from. And then Todd wants to say that that's not yet emancipation. Emancipation is after that. Um, and so I think, I think we're, we're, and if Todd was here, I would say this and hear what he would have to say in response. But I would say that, yes, he's using the rebel as that figure. Um, I just never saw that when I read Camus, I didn't see him as, as that stage in emancipation. I just locate the rebel in the next stage. So it's, it's really where you locate the rebel as, as the person who is still intertwined with what they reject or who, is, who, is, who has a positive dimension to their lack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, it might almost be like a stage you have to go through too, you know. Um, so, so for example, I work in local food systems and it's one of those kind of occupations or one of those you know areas to work in where to try to accomplish something takes a whole lot of effort and it's really really hard and it's a slog and it can be you know rolled back with the change of administration and um and so that that idea of you know that because he, he looks to the um Sisyphus, right and as, that, as an example, and that's really helpful to me, where it's like you, you are doing this work because you love the work. You, you love what you're doing and the task at hand, whether or not it's going to get you, you know, something in the future or not. Yes, that, that, that's key, by the way. If we, to, hit, to hit it in, in some concrete way, just like Gene and Didi talked about, Gene was saying earlier, is that actually at a very concrete level, when I did ICON, um, the why it works right at the time of icon which is the community that i was part of and facilitated for years in belfast there was lots of other groups in the united kingdom that were doing something similar and they were called alt worship and uh the, but most of them burned out and i realized it was because most of them were it was it was taking energy from them rather than they were getting energy from it and we were lucky in belfast that i was working with a group of people where they where it was giving us energy the failure, as in we were trying to articulate something that we couldn't articulate, we were trying to do something that we didn't quite understand, and we were, so we were driven, and it was taking energy, but it was giving us energy, and that is the rebel, in a sense, is like, if, if what you're doing, if it's great work, but it's, it's taking energy from you, you're going to end up burning out, so it's, it's, it's about how do you enjoy the, the challenge, and um, yeah, when you've got that, you've got you you know you're you're you've got something really good. <laughs> I love that. Hey, Pete, is, Pete, is there is there value in both? Because it seems like there's still good stuff done 
when people burn out, which, you know, I experienced with Mars Hill Cafe yeah. and had to take a break and, and then also move into just normal work that finances the rest of life, right? Yes. But like, it seems like there's, it's not cut and dry and you just have to find the balance because I don't know that there is balance. That's true. It's beautiful and I, if you yeah. can find that. That's very true. And I didn't do Icon forever. I mean, I, I did Icon until I was too, you know, it was too much until I now came to America. And that's a very good point. Like the main differences, Kev, is just that like you end up doing good work. It's just, I wor you know, you worry about the individual. It's like if the individual burns out, it's like they probably still create a great legacy, but it's, it's whether they, they are a casualty. I hate to see casualties, you know, but that is a good point. Sometimes you've got to do the work because you know it's good work and, and you know you're going to be a casualty. And by the way, that connects with drive. Like, you know, as if you're doing that work like you did with Mars Hill and you're going, this could kill me. Like, that's actually what gives the work even more value, <laughs> depressingly. Yeah. Well, and I think that stuff continues on. I'm sure that icon people are still connected with your work and with you personally and all of that. And people constantly rear their head from what we did. Um, and at times it's, it's still wearying, but it's, it's, it, those moments are kind of like, wow, this was great. And, you know, so, you know, so grateful to have been a part of. Yeah. One of my favorite icon events was in uh, your cafe. It wasn't an icon event. It was uh, one of your events, but it was the three tier thing where we, we worked yeah, yeah. together. And that was one of my favorite events we've ever done. Well, and, and we had brainstormed like years, like probably I don't know, maybe close to 10 years previous to use all three levels in some sort of gathering. And, you know, that was kind of a realization of a dream. It was amazing. Just to, just to let people know what happened there. And so we, a few of us, I was in Australia, I was in Sydney, and we went away. And some of this might be wrong, Kev, so add to it if, I, if I'm completely misremembering. But we went away and we planned an event together in this cafe that Kev is running. And... What we did, which I remember this well, it's beautiful. Um, we, we thought there's three levels to it. And so people came in on the ground level. So if you think of the psyche as the superego, the ego, and the id, right? Similar kind of structure. So people come in at the level of the ego and the self. And someone was holding up a sign. They're not saying anything, it's holding up a sign. And depending on how you read it, you were pointed upstairs or downstairs. And the sign said, God is now here or God is nowhere. Right, it was all one word. So if they said God is now here, they were sent downstairs. And if they said God is nowhere, they were sent upstairs. And upstairs was all about, and it was beautiful because it was all about the positive dimension of religion. And I was quite confessional religion, but the beautiful side of it. And there was this notion of where does your faith lie? Was the theme, where does your faith lie? Your faith lies in various things that have helped you through. And somebody told a story about how their faith helped them through this broken relationship or difficult relationship with their partner. And then downstairs was uh, where the theme was, where does your faith lie? Which is, where does it lie? Where has it let you down? And, um, uh, and the same person who told the story about how their faith helped them you know, with their relationship, they swapped. And downstairs, they told about how the relationship fell apart. Um, and upstairs they sang the song, I once, I once was blind and now I can see, uh, was lost and now I'm found. And downstairs the song was, I once could see and now I'm blind, was found and now I'm lost. And we had these two very different experiences and then everyone shifted halfway through. 
and this it created this beautiful experience of um you know of rupture i loved it so yeah and i've never we've never written about it kev you should write that's that one down yeah so yeah probably should the thing is i spent the whole time downstairs uh i never like i, I didn't go up upstairs until we kind of did a debrief afterwards um but um no that was that was a moment because you know some of your initial work really influenced what we were doing at mars hill so but yeah it's great oh yeah and you're you're pretty close on the story. You're very close on the story. Good. Sometimes I mix lots of stories together. But I remember we went to that retreat. We went to that house, and there were the there were the fucking parrots, parrots like little birds, bird like colorful birds, and they would like sit on you. That that was incredible. Australia is amazing. Lots of animals that would kill you, but lots of beautiful ones too. Um, I'm just looking at the chat box, by the way, just to see if there was any questions in the chat box. Anybody want to jump in while I'm looking at that? I think oh, it's the chat is talking about Brandy and um, her kind of leaving Christianity, but in a positive way. Um, death drive is the newest thing for me. I mean, especially as a Christian background, we don't see that necessarily in the Bible, front and center, but is it in the Bible? And I learned yesterday that Troy sort of came across death drive because his daughter died from the Spanish flu. Oh, so that's interesting. But um, didn't know that. I do, drink, I do a, this sort of drinking game. Uh, two words when you say love, which that's like amazing to hear that tonight. How you express that? The other word is, is tension. So um, tension is kind of a code word for dialectic. Is there a dialectic between drive and desire? Mm. So I need some more on on the the drive, maybe death drive or not. But but. Um, I mean, and the other thing is, was, was Jesus struggling with this? Was he a rebel? Was he a positive example of rebel? Yeah, all great. Like, so for me, first of all, yeah, I actually think, and this is why I'm very positive religion in a way. Like, I think religion at its best. So the various descriptions of religion that you find in the academy, most of them, they all have something really interesting to say, but, but you will find a lot of them look at religion in terms of how it adapts people to culture and adapts people to society and how it has an evolutionary you know dimension um but actually i think that the core of religion at least judeo-islamic christian religions and uh, probably the others but is actually they're directly attempting to understand and manage death drive right like that's that's what makes them so interesting and and i think sin is the name for death drive and so for me religion i think is not about adapting you or kind of making you kind of yeah more adapted to society but it's it's attempting to understand and attempting to uh forgive or rob the sting of or help you tarry with the lack right that and and that's, again, what original sin for me means and what sin means. It's not about being bad. It's not an, a, a moral thing as such. It is moral, but in an ontological way, in, in a very deep way. So that's, that's my thought of religion, that religion is fundamentally revolves around how to cope with drive. That's why I, I did my primary degree in scholastic philosophy. And what I discovered in scholastic philosophy you get all of the debates in theology that happen now in philosophy and in uh, continental philosophy is they were happening in scholasticism um, in, a, in a very sophisticated way. And once you kind of like strip away some of the, 
the language that is outdated to us, to our ears, that's foreign to our ears, you find that they're incredibly contemporary. And then, yeah, in relation to Jesus and the rebel, um, 100%, I think that, that what you see in, uh, I think you can read the figure of Christ as the figure of, so there's Jesus and there's Christ. And I think there's good to make a certain dialectic difference between the two. So Jesus is a person who may or may not have existed, probably existed in some way who we've got these stories about. So there's Jesus, the person, and there's Christ, which is the theological unraveling of incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, right? Um, and the question is to what extent, how are, how are they linked? That takes us into a you know, massive field. But, but you could say that Jesus, as in the things that we read about Jesus, they do seem to be very connected to uh, not trying to, uh, not trying to get us to believe a certain set of things. You can't really create a belief system out of what Jesus said, but rather helping people confront the truth of their drive, confront their own um, uh, uh, their own selves and in that confrontation finding freedom so yeah I think I'm just echoing what you're saying but do you want to come back on that Bill and say anything else about it or no that, that's great and like you said there, there is Jesus Christ thing to explore that's huge it's very yeah. good yeah and that, that thing that Jesus Christ that's because that's the that's the dialectic together Jesus and Christ so Paul wasn't interested in Jesus at all. Never talked about it. Never talked about what he said. Never talked about the miracles. And he's the first guy to write this stuff. I mean, when you remember, like, if you read the Bible, the New Testament, it's like, it doesn't start with the Gospels. It starts with Paul. And you go, like, so the, who's the first person to write this stuff down doesn't care about Jesus at all, right? except insofar as he died, <laughs> crucifixion, resurrection. But that's interesting. Um, because if you're a Paulinian, you're kind of interested in this, um, in, uh, in the theological meaning of the, these ideas. And that's what parotheology is. It's very Paulinian in a way. Yeah, Paul was very systemic, right? And Jesus, not. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus, like, you don't get, you don't get anything about Jesus until like, I don't know what, 70 years after his death. I, I can't remember when, the, when Mark was written, but the earliest gospel is still a generation or two generations from, from Jesus. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you got Paul is, is just, he's, he finds something fascinating in this notion of the death of God. And then that's what is unraveled over thousands of years is <laughs> the crazy philosophical, for me, the philosophical meaning of the death of God is what fascinates me. Um, now, oh, here, we've probably, we've been chatting away, it's 10 past seven. So obviously everyone's free to leave. Don't just leave and go. But if you want, let's maybe hang around for another five, 10 minutes if there's a couple more comments and we'll finish about 20 past seven. So anybody else want to kind of do some final thoughts? Hey, uh, Pete, it's Jono here from New Zealand. How hey, are you? Oh, Jono, hey, how's it going, man? Your face, yeah, good, I want to see your face. Hold on, where are you? Oh, because uh, it's not coming up on my screen. Talk again. Okay. Yep. Okay. I think you have to unpin your, uh, yourself. Oh, I see one. you now. I see you. Okay. Yeah, I've got the trees in the background. Um, yeah, I was just keen on hearing a bit more, keen on hearing a bit more from you about um, the interactions between loss and, and desire and drive. Um, and I guess just the personal observation I've had within myself and, and seeing others around me, when, when you go through some deep waters, 
um, or, or you you work your way through um, you know, a, a, an unusual thing in your life that, that, that you're confronted with, it gives you a bigger engine uh, and, and builds your compassion for, for helping others. And yeah, just about some more about those interrelationships, I guess. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying about the, the, the more that you're aware of these things in yourself, the more compassionate you can be. I like that. Um, uh, if you can't be compassionate about um, how people self-destruct and how people engage in self-destructive behavior and it just annoys you when you see it, right? Why does that person keep repeating what's called compulsive repetition? They keep repeating their same destructive behavior. Uh, they, they break up with different people, but they have the same script, right? You know, why, why is that? Um, you, then it's, a, it's, it's probably because we haven't kind of like uh, enough um, connection with that dimension of ourselves and of how drive works within ourselves. Um, so can you, get, can you talk a little bit more about what you're asking? Because I think I get what you're saying, but um, is that, am I on the right lines of what you're yep. wondering? I guess it's just uh, around like the observation that sometimes... Um, Sometimes it takes, you know, getting to the end of yourself or what, what you, your paradigm for living and, and the assumptions you had. Um, and, and if you have a, a bit of a meltdown or a break, um, a breakdown, um, or, or you actually confront something traumatic that's gone on in your past, um, that, that actually you find afterwards it, in time that you're propelled into, um, I don't know, a, a, a better directed drive and, and a, greater depth of of compassion yeah yeah I mean, like, I think, oh, go ahead. oh just um yeah just whether um yeah does it does it take um the immense loss to enable you to be uh to, to i guess un unveil the uh deeper strengths in in helping others yeah i mean so the bad news is that obviously sometimes we don't break out even when we have a loss a really bad loss we we retreat into certainties and so sometimes religion is the retreat from that possibility from that potential what is it the chinese proverb that there's everything under heaven is in chaos uh the situation is perfect something like that there's some kind of like saying but um the, when chaos is happening there's an opportunity for an event and an event is something that can make a radical change but there's always a temptation to, uh, to uh, dig in. Um, and that, that's what Paul Tillich says fundamentalism, by the way, is he says fundamentalism is not certainty, it's repressed uncertainty. So you're not a fundamentalist if you, just, if you think you're right, right? You're probably just naive, right? But you think you're right because you grew up always thinking you're right, you're always around people who think the same as you, nothing wrong with that. But the moment when you're confronted with people who think differently from you, who are maybe smarter than you and have read more, you've got a choice. And the choice is to go, oh God, I never thought about that. Let's talk more. Or to close your ears and go, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. <laughs> um, and for Tillich, that's when fundamentalism starts. So it's not certainty, it's repressed uncertainty, it's when you're confronted. So the, the big thing for me is when, it's like the A-team, right? You know, like when there's trouble in the community, right? If the A-team show up, they can make a change and it becomes good and useful and then they leave at the end. 
if the A team don't show up, it's probably going to be a disaster, right? So I want to create a space where when the trauma happens in our lives and the difficulty happens, that um, the, if the right people are around in the right circumstances, yes, then you can kind of like become more sensitive to this dimension. You can make peace with it. You can make peace with your own death drive. Because for me, it's not about getting rid of your death drive. That's why I always talk about the difference between forgiveness of sin and, and payment of debt. Forgiveness of debt and for payment of debt. Payment of debt is to fill the lack. Forgiveness of debt is to say that the money you owe me is nothing. So one fills the nothingness. If I pay the debt, it fills the nothingness. To forgive a debt says the nothingness is nothing. You don't have to fill it. The nothingness is nothing. And so for me, it's like we don't get rid of the lack, but with the right help, we can become, we can tarry with it, we can make peace with it, and only then can we help other people. Like only then can we become useful for other people in their journey. So I think that's what you're saying. Is it what you're saying? I don't know if that sounds good. Okay. It's good for you, by the way. I don't know if you heard, but Alone might be being picked up by an Irish broadcaster because um, you supported the So that just happens today. So I, it's awesome. Well done. <laughs> okay, one more thought or comment before we finish up, Pints and Parables. Um, did you, did, by the way, did you, people like this format? Because this format is possible to do on a regular basis. It's not possible for me to give you 20 parables uh, every week, but once a month, giving a parable or two and talking about it is possible to do. So does this format, or is there any ways you think it could be improved? I liked it. You thought it, you, you liked it? Yeah. Um, it's, it's the only problem with it is it's probably quite similar to copying concepts. <laughs> so, but there might be enough difference to make it work. So I might try and do this once a month. I'll, I'll see, but, uh, I think, I think I could probably do that. I have a question. Oh, hello. I, yes. Andy, um, are you thinking about uh, teaching how to write parables? Cause I, you mentioned, I'm just curious cause I would be interested in that. Right. I would be up for it if there was enough people who were interested and if I had enough courage to think that I could do it. <laughs> um, so hypothetically, yes. What, what's your interest, by the way? Is your interest to, to use it, to, to speak with them or to write them or to, 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 to implement to write them? them? I mean, I, know about, I don't know about other people, but I just know for me, like, I, I've always wanted to write more and like for me it would be a great practice to put in those elements and learn how to write a story that's really impactful and makes you think of a new perspective. And so I don't, you know, I don't know enough about how write, how writing them works and it feels like it would be hard, but I would love to learn like what's involved in writing it and learn how to do it just to yeah. be a better writer and also a better thinker and try to try to also help other people see new perspectives because you know sometimes you, you hear a parable and you're just like, oh my gosh, like I totally did not see it that way or see that coming. And I just love, I love the idea of being able to do that. Yes. Okay. That's good. Okay. I'm going to try and figure out a way to do that. I um, Yeah. Because it, I'm thinking that exactly what you said, which is parables are actually a very good way to learn how to think dialectically. So if we did a practical how to write parables over maybe three or four weeks, it's not just about writing parables, it's also about how to think dialectically, it's how to think tension, it's how to think contradiction, and how to communicate contradiction in a punchy way. 
So that could be that could be useful. And if we got people who who want who are, who are writers or who want to be writers or who are speakers or who want to be speakers, it's useful for both those um, disciplines. Like if someone I don't know, are you a speaker? Or are you a writer? Or are the just are, are you? Well, I used to. I've always wanted to be a writer, but I've never I've never finished a book. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm actually a teacher. But I prefer, I, I want to write better because I do have an idea that I want to complete a book at some point. Um, but I, I love just taking in things that, because in order to, for me to write better, you really do have to learn how to think better because yeah. that takes a lot of thinking to get it organized and figure out what your point is. And so for me, it would be just really great practice. But for me, it's more about just like helping others see new perspectives, I guess, in, in whatever form, whether it's writing or telling it out loud because um, for me, parables have helped me a lot. And so, I don't know, I just find it to be really helpful in, in my field. I, I work in mental health and teaching. And so that's just, I would love to, it would help me apply that to my, my career goals. Because uh, yeah. here's the thing, I mean, this is not completely true maybe, but I think it might be, <laughs> let's see, is that parables, I think, can only be written from a certain position, which is for me, the true position, <laughs> which is dialectics um, and contradiction. I think parables are at their worst whenever they are in service of um, a non-dialectic way of thinking. So that's why I think Kierkegaard was so good at writing parables because he was a dialectician. So if we talk about writing parables, there is a certain sense in which we need to talk about a certain way of thinking because um, that's important. Um, but that could be really interesting because that could be a really interesting way of going like, why is it that, that dialectic thinking is, is such a powerful way of thinking? I, because the, here's the problem. The problem is that people want to do how to write parables with me, but they, they don't know the theory that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Then they're, they're, it's going to be a real nightmare. But I can do it with, with people who are, he, who are here because you guys know and are on the same journey with me and in the same field. I think that's always the problem is when I run events that there's sometimes someone will come from such a different perspective that I go, I can't even teach you how to write a parable until you understand how conflict works. So um, I think we can get around that by just doing it. Yeah. On a Patreon model. So I'll think about that. Uh, I'll try and do that. <laughs> I'll maybe do a two week thing. Let's do a two week thing and um, see how that goes uh, on zoom. I'll, I'll set that up sometime in the summer and we'll, we'll do that. Cool. All right. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for checking in, for being part of this. Um, I think this, this could be something I could do monthly, so I'm going to look into that. Uh, have a great Friday night. If you're Friday night, some of you are in Sydney, so it's the middle of the day, so enjoy your day. And um, I'll see you again soon.